millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hello everyone, and since we've just been through the Armada and, of course, Elizabeth's famous Tilbury speech on the History of England podcast, it just so happens that I got to talking on Twitter to a guy called Sean Lang, a lecturer and educator who also teaches history through drama. Now, it just so happens that Sean had written some really fun things to do with the way the Tilbury speech was represented in films through the years, so very kindly he agreed to come on the podcast and tell us all about it. There are some short clips in here and what follows, which I put in subsequently. But also, if you go to the post on the website, thehistoryofengland.co.uk, you can see some clips of the speech from YouTube. But anyway, here we go. Hello, everybody, uh, and welcome to a special episode of the History of England. I'm very lucky to have been joined today by Sean Lang. Sean, uh, tell everybody all about yourself. <laughs> I'm uh, I lecture in history at Anglia Ruskin University, which is at least the history part of it is in Cambridge. Um, I've been I was for many years a school teacher um, and uh, did a lot of work in the historical association as well. And it might be relevant to this because I also do a lot of theatre writing and um, sort of look, looking at the way in which you can present the past uh, on stage, which relates very much to what we're going to be talking about today about history on film. It's a fantastic thing. I saw your website and I love the idea of, which we kind of lost a bit, it seems to me, of telling stories through theatre and through drama about history and educating in that way. We, it's, we've got quite serious about history. So I, I thought your 
So it was great. It's a, it's a, a very interesting exercise, particularly if you are a historian rather than someone who's sort of using history because you're basically a playwright or whatever. Um, because I think if you're a historian, you have a certain sort of loyalty to what should we call it? The truth or accuracy, let's call it that, you know, in a yeah. way that, um, you know, many script writers don't feel. And so they mm. sort of will take all sorts of liberties. And I, I think trying to get that balance between what is practical, particularly in the, on the stage when, you know, if you get to have everyone who was actually present in the past, you've, <laughs> that's another actor, another costume. It's a lot of, you know, a lot of money. Yes. Um, and, um, and also you've got to give them something to say, otherwise it's not much fun to come up every night for a, yeah. a play just to stand it looking pretty in the background. Um, but also it's an interesting thing about a character. What I mean is that anyone in the past, um, they're, you know, most part they're dead. So their character, we have to sort of reconstruct from what they left behind. And then when you're writing uh, a piece of uh, drama or, or whatever, then in a sense what you do is you create another person so you have the you have the historical person you mm-hmm. have the interpretation of the historical person you have the presentation of that by um uh but by, by the script and then of course you have the actor as well who interprets it as well so the relationship between right. the, the person you see on stage or on a screen and the real historical character has gone through an awful lot of stages of interpretation uh, to come down to the person and of course what you have to bear in mind and this is really true once you get it on the screen is that most people will assume that the thing or the person they're seeing or hearing is the real one. Well, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because it kind of relates also, doesn't it, to this thing about, you know, what is the truth? And let's not get into this too much, but, you know, that people see the same event in very different ways and even the the practicalities of the event are often very different. So what you're describing, I suppose, is a fundamental problem of all history writing of any type. Absolutely. And when you're looking at it in a sort of drama um, setting, the other thing you have to bear in mind is the role of a director or a producer um, who has to um, produce something which looks right you know, to, to an audience. And therefore, uh, and this is why in um, films, certainly nowadays, they tend, they usually are pretty good at getting the look right, partly because we have a much better understanding, you know, knowledge mm. of what periods in the past look like um i mean you, you can check on google images if you if you have any doubts yeah. you know based on the way that you couldn't before um but so that's you know they often go to a lot of trouble to get that right but as for what historians might think of as the rather more important stuff about uh you know what uh, what people said or how people were or even actually details of costume um they won't worry about that because what yeah. they want is a is a package is a product that they can sell, as it were, to an audience. Now, hmm. there's a very interesting contrast between the way you, you, I mean, you still package when you're writing history, but the priorities are very different. And I suppose your audience is us- usually fairly different as well. It seems to me a selection of what you write about mm-hmm. it also, is also an incredibly easy way for historians to affect what they write. You can just leave stuff out because you can't carry it, cover everything. Exactly. Yeah. You've immediately affected the story. Anyway, it, enough. That's not what you talk about. But related to what you're talking about, your drama, I, you had this great idea, uh, which we talked about on Twitter of all places, of how 
Elizabeth I's famous Tilbury speech about at the time of the Armada, how that's been reinterpreted in film in different ways. That, that's right, because I, I used to, well, we, ha- we had a, a course at Anglia Ruskin called Film and History. And mm. this was really trying to get students to be very aware, to be, if you like, I suppose the word might be literate, sort of historically literate in looking both at historical film um, mm. and at the way in which history is presented on film. And of course, there's a, an area which uh, which is very much relevant to this, where you have both, where you have the way history was presented back in the past. Um, so it's, uh, and I had this idea of taking exactly the same historical moment and seeing how that same moment was presented in different um, different film versions. Uh, I have to confess, I can't remember how I latched on to uh, Elizabeth's right. Tilbury speech, but it's because there's a lot, lot of films made about Elizabeth um, and indeed, you know, continue to be made. And it's such a big moment in um, her story. Um, you know, it's, it, I suppose there are one or two others, I suppose, from the Second World War or from Nelson or something like that, where you might have got the same. But uh, but this was this is one I latched on to. Mm-hmm. And immediately... I discovered that there really is such a difference between the way in which the same moment is presented that really, in a sense, what you're looking at is how different periods of our recent past have seen themselves by using history as a sort of mirror. Which relates exactly to what we're talking about, wasn't it? You know, there is no one history. Uh, And I suppose postmodernists would say, is there a history at all? But anyway, let's not get into that again. Okay, so that's very good. Can you tell us a little bit about the provenance of the Tilbury speech? This is from the time of the Armada, when there was a, and it's very important to get get on board here, that um, the threat of a Spanish invasion um, although we know that the Armada was uh, sort of blown to pieces by the winds and by English action, what have you, they didn't know that. And the danger and the sheer size of, of the army just over the water, relatively easy to transport it. And if they did, they'd head for London and uh, go up the Thames estuary, which is why Tilbury in Essex was, it sounds a bit strange, but actually it was the front line. At a time when, uh, again, the, the army uh, had Philip landed, we're, we're talking about something like, you know, Hitler's Wehrmacht. It was absolutely massive, very, very powerful. This is a real emergency. And um, the Queen make, made very good use of her own presence in the way that she was very good at doing. Um, she'd been on the throne for, um, you know, since, since, well, for 20, nearly 30 years by then. Um, and uh, in fact, exactly 30 years. And she uh, presented herself to her troops as a sort of propaganda coup, boost morale, really sort of put some heart uh, into them. This is the sort of thing that she did. Now, um, the speech itself uh, is is very famous. You can, uh, certainly one or two phrases from it are often quoted. This is the one which has got that famous phrase about, I know I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a a prince, uh, of a king and a king of England too, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Um, how do we know that she said it? And this is always the case for any speech before the age of recording, so in other words, for most of history, um, you're reliant entirely upon written records of what was said. When you have someone getting up, as you'd have, for example, in later on in Parliament, where they very often have the speech written out in front of them, and you've got people taking down a, a verbatim rep- report, then we can be fairly sure uh, that what we've got is 
pretty close to what was said. But that's not the case here. So what you tend to get with major speeches, uh, particularly when, as in this case, they're done for propaganda purposes, is what you might call an official version, um, which is written out and and uh, either at the time or, of course, very often um, slightly later. And in the case of this one, um, this seems to have been certainly an official version um, which was given out later. So we don't know if that's actually what she said. But what we can say is that it's certainly in line and is sort of in character with the, how, the way she expressed herself. It's absolutely in line with the way in which she made use of her womanly sort of body and image. And um, uh, and since it, it propaganda was needed, it's a very good, powerful piece of propaganda. So although we can't be certain it's the exact words, I think we can be fairly confident confident rather than certain that it's, yeah. it will almost certainly be very close to the sort of message that in those circumstances she would have wanted to give great okay and before we go on actually my favorite version of the speech i think might be the horrible histories one where she she says uh, i have the heart and body of a uh, of a king uh, and the king would like it back please so uh let's without more ado let's start talking about the various films i think what i might do just for information sean and to everybody listening actually that i'll stitch some bits of the speeches in just to give people a, a flavor but we don't have that here so i'll do that later um so we start with flora robson Yes, this is 1936, right. a film made in Hollywood uh, called Fire Over England. Um, and um, it's mainly a sort of romantic swashbuckling film uh, starring Laurence Olivier and Vivian Lee. And in fact, this is the film where Vivian Lee was spotted and then uh, brought in to, to play the lead in um, Gone with the Wind. But um, Queen Elizabeth is quite an important uh, sort of supporting role, if you like, in the film. And one of the big set pieces is indeed the Armada speech. So um, certainly one thing I um, read about this was that in the original version of the screenplay, they had simply put some words together. And Flora Robson um, had done a bit of reading and had come across the text of the speech. And she's, she's basically sort of turned up and said, hey, look, I've got a better thing. I've got the actual speech. Right. Um, and uh, so what you have there is what you might call the absolutely standard version. Um, it's uh, you've got the art, you've got all the soldiers gathering. Um, there's a lot of extras there, you know, a lot of um, um, extra actors, that is to say, you know, they're in, in costume. Interestingly, because this is a tr- this is a, a trope that seems to come up every time. Uh, you see her um, riding on horseback with her sort of um, generals and people coming over a sort of ridge and then down to where the troops are. Um, they, they all seem to begin with that uh, as, as to sort of establish the shot. And then she she's on her horse um, with a soldier standing around and she gives a speech. Now, the Ladybird book of uh, of Queen Elizabeth which I remember ah. having as a child. We um, love the Lady Bird books. Lady Bird, that's right. Um, and that particular one, one, I think it's one of the earliest of the Lady Bird history titles. And I think I might say it was published in the 1950s. It is absolutely clear that the illustration in that is based on the image in Fire Over England. And indeed, it's on the cover of the Lady Bird book. So that's what I mean by the sort of the version which becomes the standard one, because there's a whole generation mm-hmm. part of it that grew up with that sort of imagery. Mm. Now, wait a minute, I mentioned this is 1936. 
1936 is also the time when there was a real fear abroad in Europe about the possibility of another war and that this war was going to be a lot, lot worse even than the second, than the First World War, of course, which they all remembered. 1936 is also the year of um, the film version of H.G. Wells's Things to Come. And that gives this terrifying image of death coming from the skies, of a, of a literally a sun, you know, which is blotted out by the sheer number of evil-looking aircraft. Very similar to um, an image from a film just a few years later, 1939, which is The Wizard of Oz, with the flying monkeys coming over. That fear of death coming from the skies, which, of course, had literally happened in the case uh, um, of, uh, of Italian bombing in, in um, uh, Abyssinia, uh, was going to come with... Um, and, and it came in 1936 with German bombing in Spain, and would come, of course, in 1939 with German bombing in, in Poland. So this is a, a world where there's a real fear of the idea of foreign or indeed alien invasion. Again, it's the time of the H.G. Wells um, um, and Orson Wells's version, the, radio, the famous radio version of his War of the Worlds with alien invasion. So invasion fears actually mm. speak more directly to an audience in 1936 than right. just you know learning about the Armada. And the idea that you should be able to sort of stand up to them, that you should defy the evil foreign enemy who dares to invade your realm is a very potent one in 1936. And I suppose, you know, if, if the story of Flora, if the story that Flora Robson told of how she sort of substituted the, what were called the original text for the screenplay is right, that in itself is significant because, you know, you don't, directors don't usually do that sort of thing on, on, on set. Um, but the power of the speech um, was clearly good box office. And the, and the film was, you know, was very well received, particularly in, in England, um, because it's, it sort of had a resonance for the 1930s. This is using the image of England standing up to a foreign uh, dictator, if you like, uh, who controls all of Europe, um, I know we're not quite at the sort of stage of Hitler's big power, but the potential of that is there by 1936, no question. And it's therefore not just a patriotic uh, type of image, it's a very reassuring one. And it makes a lot more sense when you place it into its 1930s context than it does if you just sort of say, here's a history, um, mm. you know, and this is, this is about the Tudors. It's about the Tudors, yes, but actually, it's about the 1930s as well. Very interesting. So I noticed that um, compared to the others, in a way, the response of the troops is very straightforward. It's very patriotic, very yeah. enthusiastic. There's no social realism there. It's all, you know, let's go. Yeah. Queen, as it were. Absolutely, yeah. yes, um, it is, and uh, and that's ex- and and if you sort of compare it with a, a film, um, an actual Shakespeare film made. Um, it's 1944, um, but this is um, Henry V, uh, Olivia, Olivia again. Um, right. And the big, uh, we're, we're recording this on St. George's Day, so it's very appropriate, yes. to, very appropriate uh, yeah. to reference this, because in the famous speech before the Battle of Agincourt, um, the imagery is, is similar. Again, lots of soldiers stand around listening intently, straightforward cheers for the king. Um, you know, Fire of England is not a Shakespeare film, 
but it's very much in the way in which that period, the Shakespeare period, is used. And of course, Henry V starts that lovely sequence, which is Shakespeare's London, Elizabeth's London, and then sort of the scene sort of changes, and you actually have the medieval one. So I think there's a, a way in which the uh, the Tudor period is is sort of referenced. Um, in the 30s. And the Americans, incidentally, very much buy into this. And of course, it's made mm. in Hollywood um, as a period of English stability and security and um, cultural wealth and richness. Um, you know, in other words, the, very much the golden age. Right. But in the golden age, which is uh, particularly in the case of the Armada, is under threat from a dark force, but it sees it off. And this is the sort of very patriotic thing, which Americans can buy into because they see it as their heritage as well. This is right. still the time when, although so many Americans don't have a, a, an English heritage, but the official version of Americanism is that England is the mother country. That's still mm. the case in the 30s. So you can use the, the English history as your own heritage. Um, and, uh, and that's a sort of fusion of the Anglo-American idea. So very powerful, very simple um, type of history as propaganda is a dirty word, but it is actually what it is. That it, that yeah. is, what it is. But, you know, if you like, with a benign uh, in, intent behind it. Yeah. Brilliant. Thanks, Sean. Now, let's have a little clip from the film that we've just been discussing from Flora Robson. So you know what Sean's been talking about. you all, to lay down for my God and for my kingdom and for my people, my honor and my blood, even in the dust. I know I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and valor of a king, and of a king of England, too. Not Spain, nor any prince of Europe shall dare to invade the borders of my realm. Pluck up your hearts, by your peace and camp, and your valor in the field, we shall shortly have a famous victory. Thank you, Flora Robson. So what was the, the next version to come out? Next version I looked at um, was leaping ahead to the early 70s. And we're now getting into the time that I remember from, uh, from my uh, sort of um, own youth. And this was uh, Glenda Jackson as Queen Elizabeth in the BBC Two series, Elizabeth R which in, interestingly has recently been repeated on yes i saw, I saw that actually it really it took me back uh, it to was, fantastic yeah. bbc dramas because similar time they had i claudius uh, didn't they i, uh, I claudius yeah a little bit later in the decade um right. but, uh, elizabeth are followed but i suppose the next big history one would be the adaptation of war and peace uh, which I think uh, I think we're looking at the same sort of time, seventy one, seventy two, that uh, yeah. that sort of time, and then I Claudius I think is sort of seventy six, seventy seven. But yeah, this is the time of um, the BBC's big prestige drama, and BBC Two is is central to this because this is the time when BBC Television is still very very much under the Lord Reith um, mantle and uh, and 
I was going to say shadow. I mean, shadow sounds a bad thing. I don't mean it's a bad thing, but it's still very heavily influenced by that by that ideal. And the launch of BBC Two um, was very much seen as a way in which the BBC could separate its populist BBC One um, role, which where of course it was in direct competition with ITV, which was the brash newcomer um, mm. uh, from the, from the fifties, um, and could sort of hive off its uh, more culturally. Um, I don't know, uh, culturally picky audience on BBC yeah. Two. Now, the BBC here has a sort of role to educate. And um, I would put these big, and, and I mean big in the sense that they were long. Um, you know, we're talking about series of 13 episodes, 26 episodes, things like that. Like that. The big prestige um, documentaries, like um, the famous one is Kenneth Clark's Civilization. Um, but other ones like Jacob Brodnowski, um, the the Ascent of Man. Um, mm. uh, there was a one which actually is worth talking about uh, and for another occasion, which was again a long um, series on the British Empire um, made in 1969, mm. And these things would come out with publications to go with them. Um, so, sometimes you'd have a, a big a sort of weighty book, Civilization and the Ascent of Man, both had little. At the end of the decade, a little bit later, you got the same thing for David Attenborough and Life on Earth. Um, or if there wasn't a, a book, then uh, maybe a magazine or a series of magazines. These things, you know, the BBC publications went along with these and they gave it a sort of educational weight. And absolutely the same was true with um, Elizabeth R. The opening so was a lovely piece of animation which showed her signature sort of going around with all the decoration you see, really sort of announcing that we've got a, an important piece of history television here. Um, and in fact, it was very like the opening sequence of Chronicle, which was B BBC Two's history documentary series, which again began with a big letter C and lots of decoration, very, very similar to the Elizabeth R um, opening. Glenda Jackson really made her name. Um, I mean, she was already a sort of highly regarded actress, um, and, but this sort of established her as sort of acting royalty, as it were. Mm. Um, when she appeared on Morecambe and Wise, it's exactly because she had that and they sort of bowed yes. to her as she came in, you see. <laughs> so, um, now, the bad news I've got is that when you look back to these often fondly remembered BBC series from the, from the 1970s, um, the style of television has changed massively and we have changed in our tastes possibly without realising it. So for one thing, of course, they're all studio shot. Secondly, um, the, the pace was a lot slower than we used to. Mm. You know, more duty this ain't. Um, you know, you need to get used to that. Yeah. And the emphasis was still very theatrical, and the emphasis was upon the sort of great actor performing. And we, mm. So when you come to this particular episode, you know, and looked, you know, look for the uh, Armada speech, you have, uh, yeah, you've got the the what we what we're calling the original version. It's in a fuller version than Flora Robson. Because um, it's treated almost like a Shakespearean speech, and there is a close-up of her, um, her face, and there are two soldiers. This time, as you said, they don't sort of yeah. uh, home in on the on the extras in the nineteen um, thirties. They do in the seventies because, of course, we've got a little little touch of the more democratic politics, um, if you mm. if you like. Um, I have to say that the dialogue between the two soldiers is a bit stilted. Uh, there's old grizzled soldier, and there's <laughs> young, uh, young greenhorn soldier, and the old grizzled soldier says, bread's yeah. bread, you know. Oh, there she is. There's the one <laughs> up there. Um, you know, all of that. 
but hey, it's a nod towards the sort of more human side. This, after all, is also only a couple of years after the famous royal family documentary had gone out. So we'd seen Queen Elizabeth II sort of as a real person, not just a, a, a figure at a distance. But the emphasis here is really on highbrow, high culture. This, if you like, is good for you. Sit down. It's got same sort of uh, didactic, slightly snooty side to it, I suppose, that Radio 3 tended to have at that time as well. Yeah. You know, this is good for you. This is with the BBC. This is high culture. Uh, sit down at the back there. Someone's not listening. They know who they are, you know. <laughs> and I have to say, and I was really surprised when I looked back at these, because uh, I was, what, about 10, 11 dead keen on history at the time mm. when these came out i used to watch chronicle my when we had a, <laughs> we had a reunion after 10 years from my primary school um you know when i was a student and they said oh sure we remember you you were the one who used to come in really excited um, and t- talk about something that had been on telly the night before on bbc2 you know <laughs> <laughs> they remember yes, so, so i have very fond memories of this but when i look back at it I have to confess, this is the one I found difficult to watch because it was right. so slow, mm. it was so stilted. Um, it was so stagey, old-fashioned, um, Oxbridge yeah. drama type of feel yeah. to it. It is almost like a play on film, as it were, yeah. you know, like watching, I don't know, Play for, the De- for Today or those other things yeah. that happened at the same time. It's... It's not cinematic, is it? No, it's not. And, mm. uh, and of course, they get all the costumes right. But unfortunately, and this is where your director would, would sort of look at it and say, no, I don't want anything like that. And the costumes look right, but they don't look exciting. And um, so, yeah, the whole th- thing is very much, um, well, dare I say, it's got a touch of BBC Two Open University. Because yeah. at that time, the Open University went out on BBC Two. So BBC mm. Two is associated with that high culture um didactic teaching and you know, much of the drama went in went in that way and uh, so this is the um this is the academic version if you like of elizabeth tilbury speech uh, in costume right very good excellent i, I have to say i st- still rather enjoy those old things I, I maybe i haven't moved on emotionally i'd like <laughs> to formally apologize for that okay so that's um the famous blender Okay, everyone, let's just put a little clip from Glenda into this so that you can see what Sean was talking about. I know I have the body of a weak and feeble woman. Now she comes to it. Now she comes to dice. I have the heart and stomach of a king and a king of England, too. And I think foul scorn that Palmer or Spain or any prince of Europe should dare to invade the borders of our realm. God's death, she breedeth courage in a man. What I feel in my stomach is not courage. Stand of my flank, my boy, and I'll show you how we fought the dons at Zutphen. Thank you, Glenda. Okay then, Sean, what comes next? Well, next I went um, ahead to the 1990s um, for... um, the Kate Blanchett version. Ah. Now, this is these are the two films that came out: um, Elizabeth and Elizabeth: The Golden Age. 
And uh, so, okay, 1990s, we've moved on from the 70s. We, uh, I know 90s, well, to me, they seem like yesterday. <laughs> yes. You know, they are a world away from the 70s. I know to, to some people, they might think it's all sort of, you know, old, old history, but there's a big difference between the 70s and the 90s. And that 20 years, attitudes have changed so much. And in fact, the big change, in so many ways and we're talking I'm here talking about attitudes um, in, in this context particularly towards women and the role of women um, it, there's a big change even between the 80s and the 90s the change had come across very very quickly and um, and obviously the feminist movement or you can date feminism back to the 19th century and earlier but the, what we think of as the modern feminist movement late 60s in, in the states uh, certainly underway by the by the 70s in Britain but the really big changes in terms of central mainstream media and presentation I would say is sort of um, 90s and it's reflected very well uh, in this film because in many ways to make a film about Queen Elizabeth would seem a very traditional thing to do um, as we've seen, you can, you can, you can take, uh, trace this sort of thing back to, back to the 30s. But the take on this is very different. This is uh, a sort of kick-ass um, type of Elizabeth. Um, and, uh, and she sort of knocks heads together. She's a, a woman in a world of men. Um, now, this might seem a strange thing to add in, but of course the idea of the woman who kicks ass in a world of men had been governing Britain through the 1980s of course, mm. Mrs. Thatcher. Yes. I'm not making a big difference. I'm not making a big comparison between Mrs. Thatcher um, and Kate Blanchett. But no. the image of the woman in power, the powerful woman, um, the shoulder pads and the rest of it of the 1980s carries through to the, to the 90s. And it's very much that's the sort of Elizabeth that we see um, uh, in, in that one. And um, so it's, it's absolutely um, a much more assertive, a much more physical less theatrical type of, of of Elizabeth. She's not constrained, um, and indeed, again, the costumes sort of uh, do that. Uh, she's not constrained by the uh, Elizabethan authenticity that you have with Glenda Jackson. And the other thing I would mention, because there's no getting away from it when you look at the imagery of the Tilbury speech, is Lord of the Rings. Yes. Because there would have been a huge, big um, hit there. Effectively, what you have with uh, with this Elizabeth is a sort of warrior, um, sort of el elvish warrior queen with the long hair. And this time, instead of being in the sort of... Um, the imagery that we have for Elizabeth in the previous ones, which is of her wearing a breastplate. So there's your sort of heart and stomach of a king. Mm -hmm. But the rest of her is very much a woman. She's got a dress. She's got a sort of jaunty hat on. Um, there's no there's no getting away from it. This is a woman in a, in a male breastplate. Mm -hmm. Kate Blanchard is in armour from head to foot, but with long hair going down the back. This is a much more androgynous type of, uh, of Elizabeth, if you like. Um, it's still a young Elizabeth, whereas in actual fact, uh, you know, but she, she was no longer young by the time of the Armada. But, you know, that doesn't suit the, suit the producer. So we go for a, 90, a 90s woman. That's what, uh, mm -hmm. that's what we have there. And as for the speech, well... The speech is not very PC, is it? This is yes. it's, it's not, no one was saying woke in the 1990s, but the idea was there. The idea of saying I have a body of a weak and feeble woman, I think not. So yes. the speech just goes and they just sort of invented um, a, a, a speech that's a suitable words for a good sort of strong um, woman in a man's role 
type of type of speech. But the uh, you know it's it's just it's just completely invented by the scriptwriters. Yes, I must admit uh, one of the things I I think at some point she says they will not pass yes. something. And given all the other imagery, as you've said, I kept on imagining there was going to be a Balrog would appear, or That's right, well, uh, you, know, <laughs> you know Gandalf yeah. would say fly, yeah, you fool. Sending his orcs in the back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So we're into a sort of fantasy world. Um, and the other thing, actually, in the film, though it's not in this particular uh, sequence, is the, uh, the bishops that when she wants to pass her um, religious uh, changes are through right at the start of her reign, um, the bishops are all sort of locked up. Um, yeah, they've, it's related to, to what actually happened. But the bishops all wear black. They're in black robes, black hats, the whole lot. I mean, talk about colour coding. You know? <laughs> These right. are the bad guys. Yes. And um, yeah, I think, uh, I can't remember if this is something I read at the time or if someone actually said it to me. And I hope memory plays tricks. But it's an American lady who saw the film and said, oh, wasn't she great? She really showed those bishops, you know. And, and <laughs> you've got a very, very simple narrative, which this one is, is portraying. And it's a narrative for the 90s grown out of the 80s but it's the 90s narrative and it is about the uh it's about you know a, a woman can do whatever she wants even in a, a male-dominated world look at elizabeth now elizabeth's long been a role model but her role but the, the the model itself was different in the 30s different in the um in the 70s um and different again in the 90s mm. Fascinating. I also noticed or seemed to notice that the music had a big impact in a lot of these. Um, and this, the music in this one was very, very sort of stirring and martial in the background, as it were. It was much more obvious than the, the previous films. Yes. And of course, in the Glenda Jackson, there isn't any music. Uh, music. It's just the voice, the actor yeah. voice in the studio, in the theatre, really. Um, so I, yeah, I suppose that veracity, as it were, um, rather than the, the the cinematic drama of Kate Blanchett. Yeah. Okay, then let's see what that sounds like before we move on to the next one. My loving people. We see the sails of the enemy approaching. We hear the Spanish guns over the water. Soon now, we will meet them face to face. I am resolved in the midst and heat of the battle to live or die amongst you all! Ah, excellent, Kate. The powers of Mordor will perish. So what was the next one then, Sean? And then um, I looked at the, the last one I looked at. Um, in fact, there were two I looked at, but only one of them covered the, covered the Tilbury period, which is uh, back to the BBC. But we're now into the 2000s. Now, there were two um, TV dramas about Elizabeth. One had Helen Mirren playing Elizabeth, and it was really about the Earl of Essex crisis. So it was right at the end of her reign, so it didn't have the, um, the Armada period. Um, but the other one was The Virgin Queen, uh, which had uh, Anne-Marie Duff uh, in the title role. Very interesting casting, because uh, obviously she's Irish, uh, here playing um, a, a big, important Elizabeth, um, an English queen. Um, and she very much made her name as a sort of feisty character. She was in the, the Magdalen Sisters, um, for example. Um, but not a, an establishment um, type of figure. 
uh, at all. And here she is playing um, this Elizabeth. And I think with um, with this one, even though it's relatively close chronologically to the Kate Blanchett one, but we have a totally different one again. When you go to the um, uh, the Armada scene, the Tilbury speech, in many ways we seem to be back where we began because you have the same sort of imagery, the, the soldiers in the tent sort of down below, slight slope, they come, um, the Queen again with all her attendants and uh, you know, on horseback, they come over this, over the top of the slope and then come down. It's very similar um, on the face of it to the uh, Flora Robson version. But the whole setting, in dramatic terms, I mean, is different. First of all, very cleverly, what they do is, yes, they have her delivering the speech, but almost as if they sort of thought about the, the problem of authenticity that we talked about, about right at the start. Whilst the speech is still being delivered, they then cut to other people reading it out in the council, reading it out to people out in the country. So you get the idea of the propaganda use of the speech. And of course, in many ways, that's closer to actually the way this, the, the wording was, was used. So we got a little bit of the um, the actual history sort of creeping in quite cleverly and making the point about the way in which the speech um, was used and the purpose of it. And, and now that, of course, makes very good television as well. And then the emphasis here is on Elizabeth as a um, it's a much more intimate portrait of her as a person. I was going to say of her as a woman, but of course that's what we've just been talking about with the uh, Kate Blanchett version. And it, it is Elizabeth as a woman, but central to this one is her relationship, her friendship with Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester. Mm. And uh, in the course of this scene, you see her talking, chatting, banter really between her and Dudley, her old childhood friend, the uh, relationship that was so close, couldn't happen, never quite did happen. It's a very interesting, sort of dramatically, it's a very interesting relationship between the two of them. It's not straightforward Romeo and Juliet at all. Mm. Um, it's something in many ways much deeper than that, much more interesting than a straightforward love um, love relationship. Mm. And uh, and in fact, in the course of it, you, you know, um, Dudley, you know, falls asleep in the way that you do, and you're that much older in life and tired and the rest of it, and she's sort of, uh, and the fondness comes over very well. It's a much more intimate portrayal. Of, uh, of Elizabeth. Also, in a strange way, the constraints of budget make a very interesting point because you don't have the massed crowds of soldiers that you had in the Flora Robson version. What you have is a rather sparser type of army that she's speaking to. But it does not make the point that this actually really is an emergency because I'm not saying it's dad's army exactly, but we haven't got massed ranks of, of endless troops or or deed of the sort of Lord of the Rings type of armies with the CGI and what have you. So it makes the historical point, A, about the purpose of the speech and B, about the sort of reality of the emergency, I think sort of much more realistically than any of the others. And yet at the same time, it gets the sort of intimate nature of her uh, character and her relationship across um, more successfully. Right? It's a sort of rather unlikely success. And I think of all the versions, it is my favourite. Right. It's, you know, because you can believe in, in this woman. She's not the great actress actor um of, of glenda jackson it's not she's not sort of on a pedestal she's on a horse but she's not on a, on a pedestal she's not this uh, frankly rather unbelievable um elvish character of the of the cape blanchett one she's not the prestige um standard old-fashioned patriotic history for vigor of flora robson she's she's human 
She's a real person. And yet at the same time, you're not rejecting, you're not throwing overboard the political message uh, and, mm. if you like, the, you know, the, the patriotism of it as well. But it's a more believable, more humane, more understandable type of, of patriotic message. So I, I thought the BBC did a really good job there and, and a beautiful performance, but also really clever and uh, mm. very affecting script as well. I wonder, again, I'm obsessing about the music and it's my, for my two pennies. The music in this one also is quite interesting in that it was kind of Celtic folky type yeah. music. It felt more intimate, more human, you know, and all that, all that sort of thing, which kind of ties in with, with what you're saying Absolutely. about the way she was presented. And that's because there's been a sort of sea change in um, general uh, sort of attitudes or understandings and coding, if you like. In the Floor Rod Robson's time, the big stirring patriotic music was what audiences liked to hear. And so they got it. The Celtic, uh, the idea that Celtic equals good, equals positive, equals um, humane on your level, had been underway, I think, for some time by the 2000s. And the classic example is Titanic, where the, the fact that the people in down in steerage, um, there's, I saw a wonderful spoof of, uh, of Titanic, which made the point that we've got the, what's it, the, the, the Celtic Cockneys, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> you can either be Celtic or Cockney, or ideally both. Hey, if you're American, you know the difference. You know, that, then it, you are automatically good. Mm. And so, and again, the fact that it's an Irish actress playing uh, playing Elizabeth sort of plays mm. into that. So, you know, it's you're really making use of a sort of deeply imbibed message, which is that Celtic equals good. Mm. And therefore, if you present Elizabeth, you might sort of be a little bit worried that haven't we got a rather sort of traditional British imperialist figure or something like that. But no, it's all right. And the Celtic music helps to sort of calm your fears that at least on this occasion, I know she might be a, a major figure from traditional history, but on this one, she's on the right side. Yeah. And the right. music helps to, to, to sort of put that idea into your ears and into your, <laughs> into your heart. But maybe that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I won't uh, won't make too much comment on the deep irony of uh, an Irish woman playing Elizabeth and a um, you're thinking plantation, aren't you? And yes, yes, and an Irish man playing Cromwell. Yes, um, anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, well, yes. I, when you uh, this is what I was saying about actors and characters. You know, it's fascinating talking with actors about the way in which they take a character because, and of course, interestingly, actors love playing villains. And you, you don't, you know, if you sort of play the person everyone's going to be on the side of, it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's challenging. Um, but to, to uh, and when play, actors play villains, the, what they really always look for is the, the good side, something in there. That if, if, it's, if they're just evil, you know, Dr. Evil types, then it's very difficult not to do a caricature. What they want is the human side, the side that mm. they can relate to, that other people can relate to. And so I think when an actor is playing um, someone who is so alien from their own sort of national background, mm. uh, as you say, like, uh, you know, not, um, uh, Richard Harris playing Cromwell, then though interestingly the film didn't deal with the, the Irish um, angle at all. No, but, it avoided uh, it completely, didn't it? Avoided yeah. it, yeah. But I think from an actor's point of view, that's a really interesting challenge. Um, or for, um, you know, politically, if you, you know, if you are a very strong political principles one way or the other and you play a major political character, you know, say someone like Mrs. Thatcher, uh, and if, if you're, you know, very much on the left wing, or I suppose if you're playing someone like, um, you know, Lenin or Stalin, um, if, if that's not your politics, or hey, for anyone, whoever you are, if you're playing Hitler, 
very interesting challenge to take this yeah. and make them human and make them believable. And and I mean that's what's that's what actors really like and respond to because um, yeah. you know if, otherwise you keep them for the pantomime. Yeah, indeed. One last time, then let's hear Anne Marie Duff. I know. I have the body of a weak and feeble woman. But I have the heart and stomach of a king. And a king of England, too. And I think foul score that Spain or any prince of Europe should dare to invade the borders of my realm. To which, rather than face that dishonor, I will myself take up arms beside you. I will be your general and your rewarder for your virtues in the field. We know that you already deserve rewards and crowns. And we do assure you, in the word of a prince, they shall be paid to you. And take heed too of my lieutenant general. For no prince ever commanded a more worthy or noble subject as he. By your obedience to him, by your valour in battle, we shall yet win a famous victory over these enemies of God, of my kingdom, and of my people! Well, look, that is fantastic, Sean. That's absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much uh, for coming on to say that. If there's any way you'd like people to to go and look at some of the theatre that you do or anything, do do let me know and I can put a link. Yeah, um, com. All one, Sean Lang Theatre, all one word. Great, fantastic. And, uh, and I've got a website which has got details of some of the stuff I do. Very good. And I hope we can uh, get together and talk about uh, and do something to do with theatre because I, I love that concept of, as I say, teaching history through, uh, through drama. It's a fantastic idea, so... Okay. Well, so. well, thank you very thank much you. for your time, Sean. It's fantastic, and it's been very, it's been very interesting indeed. Thank you. Okay, everyone. I hope you really enjoyed that. I thought it was great. And remember to check out the website for those film clips on YouTube, and also just to remind you of the link to Sean's drama site at seanlangtheatre.com. And I'll be back next week when we can hopefully polish off the Anglo-Spanish War. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week.